Well, as Norton already mentioned, uh, this week begins the Christian season of Lent. Now, depending on your background and your history, you may or may not have ever heard of or celebrated Lent before, and that doesn't matter whether you grew up going to church or not, because uh, Lent is one of those things in the Christian tradition that not all churches practice, that not everybody observe. Uh, When I was growing up, I went to a church and we didn't observe Lent. In fact, um, I had never engaged in Lent or never thought about practicing Lent until we actually started New Denver, and a few years ago, we decided to start engaging in some of the seasons of the historical church and the way that people had engaged in different seasons. We began experimenting with that. And so it was brand new for me. And when, when we started, it, it, it was a little bit of an odd thing because I always thought like, that's just something that the Catholics do. Like we don't, we don't do that. We're, we're Protestants. We're independents. We're non-denominationalists. But as we learned more and more about the purpose of Lent, we were drawn into wanting to practice it more and more. So what is, what is Lent? Well, I'll give you a simple definition. Lent is a period of time leading up to Easter when the church traditionally engages in practice of, practices of fasting or abstinence in identification with Christ's suffering in preparation for the celebration of his resurrection. Now, a little bit of history for you history nerds. So the tradition actually started somewhere around the Council of Nicaea. Coming out of that, that council, which was a significant time where leaders of the church, it was around 300 AD that they got together. So we're talking, you know, several hundred years after Christ had lived and the church had grown and developed lots of different practices in lots of different parts of the world. And they were trying to standardize. This is one of the places where they came together and they said, you know, for us, we have the, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, that set. But, but what is our scripture? Like, what are the documents that are authoritative to us? So they made some decisions about that. And they also began talking about church practice. And a lot of people had been going through periods of fasting, time where they would, times where they would give things up, uh, give up eating particular meals or give up particular kinds of food as a way of identifying with Christ's suffering leading up to Easter. And so they, they, they said, well, that seems like a good idea. We should probably all start doing something like that. And over time, it, it began to evolve into what is now a 40-day period of time, which starts on Ash Wednesday, which is this Wednesday, and will go all the way through Easter. Now, you may be sitting here today, if you're not a church person, if you didn't grow up in church, or maybe you're new today, or you don't regularly attend church, somebody invited you, terrible day invites you because it's freezing cold, but... If you're, if you're not a church person, this may be one of those times where you're wondering, what is the deal? What, I mean, why don't Christians do it all the same? Like, you believe the same thing, right? Like, you believe in Jesus, and you have the same Bible, but, but there's all these different churches, and they do things different ways. What is the deal with that? Great question. That is a really good question. We just finished a series called Frequently Asked Questions where Norton tackled all those. Maybe we'll put that one in as like another one in the future. Why are there so many different churches and why do they do things so many different ways? It's a, it's a complicated question, but here's a simple way I, I like to think about it. Jesus said from the beginning that, that his followers were like his family, They weren't a biological family, but it was a family of choice. People who were choosing to come alongside him and follow him. And he said, you're my family. And over time, that family has multiplied through the centuries to us. And just like your family and my family, we all have different traditions. I'm guessing you don't celebrate holidays or do things in the same way as your brothers and sisters or your cousins. Now we're talking about thousands of years that have gone on and people have 
just chosen because of personal preference or conviction that they want to follow Jesus in a particular way. So we have all these churches with these different traditions. So the question is, for us at New Denver, why did we choose, when, when we, it wasn't a core part of, of, of our tradition, we don't have a denomination, we don't even know tells, who tells us we have to do that, so why did we choose to start observing Lent when we started several years ago? Well, I think there's a few really good reasons that we do it here at New Denver. The first is, observing Lent every year, it helps create a rhythm for us as a community. So observing the two primary seasons of the church calendar, which we do, which is Advent, which is the 40 days leading up to Christmas, and Lent, which is the 40 days leading up to Easter, it creates a rhythm in our year. It creates a rhythm in our spiritual life. In the same way already in your life, there are significant markers that form a rhythm. If you have kids, you know when kids go back to school and when they get out of school for the summer, that affects your life and it creates a rhythm. For some of you, it's your favorite sports teams. You know, your sports teams create a rhythm for your life and you orient, you do things differently in different seasons of time. For some of you, it's ski season. You know, when ski season comes, your life changes. You begin doing things differently. The same is true for us with our spiritual life. We feel like observing these two significant uh, celebrations of time really help us create a rhythm in our spiritual life. The second reason is observing Lent builds anticipation and expectancy for Easter. This is one of the things that I love most about Lent. When I grew up and all we had was Easter, it was like Easter would come and go like any other Sunday. You could just easily miss it. The only way sometimes I knew that as a kid that Easter was coming is they started selling peeps in the grocery store. (laughs) And so, so with Lent, we begin 40 days out saying, Easter is coming. Easter is coming. And it, and it forces us to think. The third thing is, I think it, it causes us to, to think about some of the darker and the more difficult aspects of our life. Because, you know, when you, when you skip right through Lent and you don't really think much about Jesus's life or, or the challenges that he experienced, the persecution that he suffered, that he was arrested and he was tried and he was executed. When you don't, when you don't think about those parts of, of his journey, when you just jump right to the celebration, it, it, can, it can sometimes make it feel like as a church, we're just doing a spiritual pep rally. We're just trying to make everybody, pump everybody up and help them to feel like, like, like everything is great, everything is awesome in life, when in reality, things are difficult and things are hard sometimes. Even in Jesus's life, there was dark places and difficulty and challenges. And Lent gives us an opportunity to focus in on those things because life isn't all about joy and celebration. Lent makes space for those more difficult spaces in our own lives. And we observe Lent in New Denver because I think it is a great way for us to reset, to reset our hearts, to reset our minds, to reset our souls because it's so easy for us to get out of, out of calibration uh, where, where we get busy. I mean, Norton already said that this morning. We're all really busy. And Lent is one of those times, the rhythm of Lent coming every year and, and the way that we choose to observe Lent, one of the things that we encourage people to do is to give things up and take things up. 
That's the language that we've used around Lent. Is it's a time for giving up and a time for taking up. It's a, it's a time for letting go of things maybe that, that we've enjoyed or, or that are good things, but we want to distance ourselves from. Maybe they've become too important in our life. And this could be foods. It could be taking some time during the week to, to not eat a meal just to be able to identify with Jesus' suffering. And it can be taking things up as well. It could be taking up practices like prayer, or reading your scriptures in a more consistent way than you do in your everyday life. Uh, this year, we would encourage you to think about taking up something that we're going to do together on a commu- as a community on Sundays. We're going to take up over the next 40 days, we're gonna, over the next the season of Lent leading up to Easter, we're going to take up going through the book of Luke. Now, now, Luke is one of the four accounts of Jesus's life, and on Sundays, we're going to come and we're going to particularly focus on the encounters that Jesus had with different people throughout his life. And we're going to look into those stories to see if we can find the significance uh, for the story and for the time. What was it that Jesus was, was maybe trying to convey in that story, and then what can we learn from that? But we would encourage you to take up through the week reading through the book of Luke, On your way out today, you're going to get a little one-page handout front and back that has a calendar for some things that are suggestions that you can give up and you can take up. And one of them is each week it has a section of scripture from the book of Luke that we would encourage you to read. Because on Sundays, we're just going to be skimming along the surface and picking a few stories out. But reading through the entire book will give you a way to be able to engage with all of Jesus's life, which is so meaningful as we begin to move towards Easter, towards the significant events of Jesus's life through his crucifixion and his resurrection. So we encourage you to consider taking that up. Now, today we're going to jump right into the story of Luke. We're going to jump right into one of the stories of Jesus's life, and we're going to jump right into a really weird one. I just decided to start us off with a really weird one because it's a great story, uh, and I think it it gives us a great insight into why Lent is so important. So we're going to jump right into it this morning uh, by going to the book of Luke chapter 4. Book of Luke chapter 4. If you have a Bible uh, or you want to pull your phone out, you can do that. It's page 7. 717 on the Black Bibles uh, at your seat, and then we're going to actually put the verses on the screen as well, so we'll have those for you. So, as I mentioned earlier, Luke is one of the four accounts of Jesus's life, and they're all very different. All the accounts of Jesus's life provide us with a different perspective on his, on his life, and Luke's is very interesting. So, Luke was not a Jew, so he didn't grow up uh, within the Jewish culture. He was a Gentile. He was a, he was a non-Jewish person, uh, probably a Greek. And he had a unique insight as an outsider to all of the things that had taken place around this man, Jesus, in his life. So he became a follower of Jesus later, and he decided, uh, based on being hired, to, to, to create an account of Jesus's life. At the beginning of Luke, it's, it's him writing to his, his patron, uh, Theophilus, and he says, you know, just as I set out to do, this is an orderly account of, of all of the things that have happened. And he wrote two books. It's actually, there's a companion set. The book of Luke, which is the story of of Jesus's life, and the book of Acts, which is an orderly account or a story about the early church. And he writes it for this patron as a way of providing him clear insight on the things that he believed. So so what, what historians believe is that Luke went around and he interviewed. He wasn't an eyewitness himself to Jesus's life. So he went around and he interviewed people who knew Jesus, who were still alive during the time of his writing, and he 
collected all these stories. He took the existing manuscripts and, and, and things that existed about Jesus's life and he compiled them all together. He was like a journalist. He, he was putting together, he was a doctor actually, but he was acting like a, a journalist would today, getting all the facts, putting it all together and organizing it and structuring it. So uh, his book is very, it, it reads very much that way. And it's, and it's an outsider's perspective. So you don't get a lot of the Jewish cultural stuff that you do in some of the other gospels. So we're jumping forward today in the story all the way to chapter four. So this week, if you choose to read along in the book of Luke, you can go back to the beginning and you can read the stuff that I just talked about. You can also read the Christmas story. It's there all about Jesus's birth and his early life. But today we're going to jump into a story that begins Jesus's public ministry. It happens just after he has been baptized by John the Baptist, which is sort of his coronation as the Messiah, and he's beginning his public ministry. And we read in chapter 4, verse 1, we read this. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Now, I'm going to stop right here because we're already into the weirdness, okay? So if you've read this story before and you're familiar with it or you're a Bible person who grew up in church, you just read right past that and you didn't even notice it. But if you're new to the Bible, as soon as I said the words, he was tempted by the devil, you heard the record scratch and it stopped and it's like, what? And maybe in your mind, you were like, wait a minute, is, is it talking about this guy? Is it talking about this guy? Do we have a picture? Okay, do we have a, yeah, do we have a, do we, are you, is that what comes to your mind? I mean, some variation, when you heard the word the devil, that some variation of the red guy with the horns and the pitchfork probably came to your mind. And the problem with that is, as soon as that happens, we relegate this story to the fairy tale category, because this is not something that could have happened in real life. If this guy shows up and is interacting with Jesus, it's not a real story. And the reason that I think we do that is, is because that's been sort of glommed onto what our perception of what's going on in this story is. But what if the problem isn't the story itself? What if it's the caricature of this figure that Jesus is interacting with here in the story? Now, in Luke's defense, again, he's just interviewing people. He's just collecting information. So he's passing along what, he, what he's, he's hearing and what he's being told. And he's told that at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, that Jesus is led by the Spirit of God, that this is something that, that his father, that he has this connection with God and he's led, he's motivated out into the wilderness. Probably a more appropriate translation of that word would be the desert because of where he was near the Jordan, mostly desert around there. So he's led out into the desert and he has an encounter with someone. He's tempted. By whom? Now, the word that, that Luke uses here is not literally devil because Luke was not writing in English. He was writing in Greek, and he used the word diabolos. Diabolos. And the Greek word diabolos, it actually means slanderer or adversary, the arch enemy of man's spiritual interest. So what he, he literally is saying here is, is Jesus is tempted by the slanderer, by the enemy, by the adversary. So why does it say devil? Well, there is actually throughout the scripture, there are references to a figure who is the personification of evil, 
The personification of all things anti-God. The challenge is, and this would be, this would be another great FAQ question, is there a devil? And does he have pointy you know, horns and a tail? Like, because there are so many different stories that reference God's enemy, that reference someone who is actively working against all things God is trying to, to bring about in the world. But the problem is they don't fit together really well. And so people have had imaginations about what it would look like, and they've come up with a little horny devil pitchfork guy. And, and that's one conception. But the problem is, I don't think that conception is very helpful in taking this story seriously. A few years ago, there was a movie that came out called Last Days in the Desert. And it's a, story, it's a movie that's all about this story. It's all about Jesus' time in the wilderness. And the, uh, the, the, the producer and the director um, was a guy named uh, Rodrigo Garcia, and it starred, the movie starred Ewan McGregor. And in the movie, Ewan McGregor plays Jesus, but he also plays another character. So let's take a look at this clip to see how Garcia chose to portray this interaction between Jesus and the enemy, the slanderer. That shooting star last night, you enjoyed that. It was a bore liar. I am a liar, that is the truth. I've seen every shooting star since the first one. Every flash of lightning. I've heard the last gasp of each thing that ever lived. Nothing's interesting anymore. Nothing surprises you. Not a thing. The repetitiveness obstinate, dull repetitiveness of your father's plan is bewildering to me. The same lives lived over and over and over and over again. Is there a plan? It all has to turn into something. It has to pour out into something, but into what? And that's my weakness. Curiosity. So in the movie, when McGregor plays Jesus, and he plays the enemy, the tempter, Now, I'm not saying that's how it was, that that's literally how it happened in the story. It's an imaginative conception of what might have been going on in this kind of story. And that, for me, is way more helpful than thinking about the guy with the horns and the pitchfork. Because I can't imagine a guy showing up in my life and tempting me wearing a red suit, a devil costume. I can imagine wrestling with myself and something compelling me towards God and away from God. So I think it's a brilliant way to convey this idea of Jesus interacting with a kind of mirror image of himself while he's out in the wilderness, out in the desert. And so reimagining this interaction in a new way may also helpfully retrieve this story out of the fairy tale category for us. So with that as a backdrop, I want to continue reading about the interaction. If we can set the, the red devil pitchfork guy aside for a second, we're going to continue to read the interaction. Verse 3, it says, The devil, the diabolos, the accuser, said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The diabolos led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. 
Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And the Diabolus led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift up your hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the Diabolos had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So there's this back and forth between Jesus and this enemy of God, this one who is trying to thwart or move him away from God's plan or purposes for his life. So what's going on here? Well, in every case, the, the enemy is bringing a temptation that is common to humanity. It's something that appeals to Jesus in his humanity because all of the temptations that Jesus faced, all of the temptations that the enemy put before him in this conversation are the same temptations that you and that I struggle with every single day of our life. And at the core is this single question. And the question is this, will you trust and depend on God or will you try to do things on your own? apart from God. That's the entire core of what the enemy was trying to get Jesus to do, was to separate himself from the plan that God had for him and to begin to act on his own, to begin to do things under his own power. And Jesus is tempted in this scenario in the exact same way that you and I are tempted every single day in our own life. Three primary ways for provision. If you are the son of God, the tempter says, then meet your own need and your desire for food. You've been out here for 40 days. You're hungry. You've got the power. Just use it. And Jesus says, that's not part of the plan. That's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to serve my own need for provision. I could, but that's not part of the plan. And so he takes scripture in every one of Jesus' answer. He reaches into the Old Testament, into the Jewish scripture, and he turns back the argument that's brought at him using the words that God had already placed in his heart because he knew the Old Testament scripture. And he says, man does not live on bread alone. I don't have to just turn this. I, this is, that's not part of the plan. That's not part of the plan. Second, he tempts him with power. He says, look out at the kingdoms of men. I will give you all their authority and splendor because they're all mine. Implication, the world operates according to the plan and the power of the, the one who is against God. It's already been given to him. He already has the control over that. And he says, all you have to do, Jesus, is bow down to me. You can skip all of the bad stuff that you know is coming and you can get all these people on the same page. Just worship me first, and then I'll have them worship you. Jesus says, no, it doesn't work like that. You can't put anybody in front of God. And then lastly, for protection, he says, if you are the son of God, then you, should, you could just jump off this building, and God would catch you. He would take care of you. Because if God is really the one who protects you, then test him. And Jesus says, that's not part of the plan. It's not my plan to test God will allow what he will allow, and he will cause what he will cause. I am not going to put God to the test. That's not part of the plan. And in every temptation, Jesus passes the test. He refuses to rely on himself. He refuses to divert from God's plan for his life, and he stays true. 
And this is so foundational for who we believe Jesus to be and why his life and his death and his resurrection is so important to us. Because as the author of Hebrews put it later, he says that Jesus can mediate for us before God because he is fully human. He's tempted in the same, he was tempted in the same way we are every single day. And yet, unlike us, Jesus never, never failed to pass the test. He was perfect in every way. He was the only human being who, who ever lived in perfect connection with the plan that God had for him, with perfect trust for God. And because of that, the author will continue to go on and say that he became the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one that we can look to, the one whom we can follow after, and the one whom we can trust in his perfection because we aren't perfect. We do fail. And here's why this is so important for us, especially at Lent. Here's why that is so important for us. Because we still face these challenges every single day. We still face the challenges of provision, power, and protection. The desire and the question, are we going to go it on our own or are we going to trust in God? We still face those challenges. If you're going to make it, we we face those messages every single day. If you're going to make it in the world, if if you're going to be provided for, nobody's going to do it for you. It's all on you. That's what the world tells us, right? If it's, if it's going to happen, it's up to you. You are on your own. That's what the accuser says. If you want to amount to anything in this world, you better get on it and you better start climbing the ladder. You better start leveraging all of your privilege, all of your opportunity, all of the power that you have to serve yourself and the things that you care about because nobody else is going to take care of you. Power is meant to serve ourselves we're told. And we're told, trust no one. Trust no one because everyone is dangerous. The world is a dangerous place. And if you're going to have security and protection, you've got to take care of yourself. And the enemy doesn't come in the form of a red devil with a funny suit and horns and a pitchfork. The enemy comes to us in the form of advertising every single day that tells us you're not enough. You don't have enough. If only you had that new Mercedes or BMW, then you would be happy. If you could get the new iPhone, then you would have it all together. If you had a bigger house, then you would feel better about yourself. If you could get some new clothes, then your identity would be secure. Self-help books that tell you that it's all inside of you. All you have to do is gut it out and be the better version of yourself. Just work harder. The enemy comes to us through the entertainment that we watch every single day and tells us that the rich and the powerful are the ones who are really important. They're the ones who have it together. They're the ones who matter the most. And what matters is, is getting that acclaim and people paying attention to you and, and how many Twitter followers you have, who has the biggest income, who has the most political connections or business connections. The power is the most important thing and then we're to use it to serve ourselves. And the enemy comes through a 24-hour news cycle that says you are not safe. Around every corner, ISIS is lurking, waiting to destroy you. The enemy comes through politicians who promise that if we, if we just build a bigger wall, we'll be safe and we can sleep better at night. If we invest more money in bombs, national defense, then we'll feel safe. 
But feelings of safety don't come from all of those things, do they? We just keep investing in more. Every day we're faced with the same question that Jesus faced in that encounter in the devil, and it's this. Will you, will I, trust and depend on God, or will we try to do things on our own, apart from God? And Lent is an opportunity. It's an invitation to begin to see our lives differently. It's an invitation to begin cutting out the noise of our life and begin focusing on again the call to follow after the way of Jesus, to connect our lives to God in a way that leads us towards his plans for us. It leads us towards trusting in him for all of the things that we need and want, for our provision, for our power, for protection, that all of those things ultimately come from God. It's an invitation to practices of giving up and taking up that help us to focus on those, on finding that connection with God. And and historically, people have have tended to, to... use Lent as a way to, to fast from things that are good things that they, that they maybe enjoyed, but things that, that were a distraction, maybe things like food or sugar or sweets or something like that. But I wonder if for us in our time, maybe it's starting to set aside some of the noise, starting to clear out some of the noise in our life. Maybe, maybe for you, it's, it's taking a break from social media once a week, or maybe just turning it off for the next 40 days altogether. Maybe it's entertainment. Maybe you just need to set aside a time, one day a week, or, or, or maybe a whole week at a time where you just don't watch any movies or Netflix or television or anything. And it's not a rule This is not a requirement. Lent is not about rules and requirements. Following Jesus is not about rules or requirements. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to find the rhythm that God calls us to in our life. And it's not about rules or regulations. It's, It's like a song. And the way of God is like the beat, like the drum beat that's always there. always playing. It drives us forward. It moves us in a direction when we align our lives around it. But the problem is we begin to add other things into our life. Things that are playing in a different beat. These are good things. Things that we enjoy. They're good tunes in and of themselves. Then we add more and more and more until there's just this chaos in our life and we feel like we're drowning in it every single day. And Lent is an invitation to stop. And find that rhythm again. The rhythm that God calls us to. The rhythm that's always playing if we'll just listen and align our lives 